For Sunday School this week, we had some audio issues that last until the 10-minute mark, and then the audio returns to normal at that point. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to our first, this is our first Sunday School of the year. And um, as you probably know, we've got uh, the Romans Sunday School is going on in the choir room uh, at the same time. And uh, that will be going for, I think, about a year is about the plan that Jerry has got. And uh, we're going to miss him in here. But uh, we're going to be talking today. So we, we, our, our goal is to get into Daniel. And we, we probably will barely get into Daniel. We might, we might talk about the first two verses or so of Daniel today because it relates to a larger subject. But we thought we would talk a little bit about the topic of God's sovereignty and suffering. And I know a lot of people have been sticking somewhere or another recently. So that's been kind of on a lot of our minds. But uh, we thought we would start with that. If you have a Bible, turn with us uh, to Romans of all things. Uh, don't let the Sunday school next door know that we're going to Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 5. And before we jump in, let's pray. Papa, would you, uh, would you pray for us? Resources to deal with 
human suffering, personal suffering, corporate suffering, uh, and, and this passage kind of gives us a few of those things. Scott, what are some of the things here that we see that are encouragement uh, to us in our suffering? Yeah, I mean, one thing I'm going to say at the beginning is that uh, when you talk about suffering, you want to have Jerry Edgar on the panel, we can't have one. <laughs> so I was just thinking about, uh, I was just thinking about it this week, about Jerry Edgar and the godly legacy he's going to leave to our church. Uh, we want him to live a long time, longer. Uh, he wants to get to heaven, but we, we want him here a long time, longer. But he's going to leave his godly, godly legacy. One of the things he's going to leave to us is the heavenly mindedness that he has. And no, I don't know about that, anybody, but the joy he has, the, the joyful anticipation of heaven. So he's going to leave this heavenly mindedness behind, but he's going to leave behind an example of someone who has modeled joy in the midst of suffering, and he has taught us again and again about the goodness of God in the face of suffering. So I'm just thinking, when you think about this topic of suffering, we must remember God is sovereign, but he is good. I mean, that's the balance in the book that we've got to have. And for me, it's just Jerry has taught me this, and he's modeled this so faithfully over and over again, that uh, it's just had a powerful impact on me personally, just... You just trust God through and through. So God's sovereign and He's good. And even this passage, Romans 5, uh, 1 to 5, He called me up, Margaret. You were in, in the hospital, and He wanted to pray for more. He wanted to pray for other people that were suffering at our church. And when He, His turn, I started the prayer, and He prayed. And He prayed, Romans 5, 1 to 5. He prayed for character, endurance, hope. He said, uh, Do these things. He said, I know you will. You've promised you're going to do that. These passages are so ingrained in them that God's going to do these good things. He's going to produce character, endurance, and hope in you. So when we come to suffering, we must remember God is sovereign, but He's good. And I, I just think that's this massive balance. Like, our suffering is never meaningless. Like, God is always doing things when we know for sure exactly what we know. He's doing this right here in, in this passage. So I think we just come back to the God is, is sovereign, but He's good. And you can mention lots of other things. Uh, I'll just mention two briefly. One would be, uh, I think Thomas Watson, the Puritan author, he said, uh, God loves when His children are possessed with the spirit of prayer. And I thought, well, how often are we really like living in the spirit of prayer? Like George Mueller did that, but how often do we really live in the spirit of prayer? Our spiritual, our prayer lives dry up. But God, He's good as what is He doing? He brings a child in, and He's just stirred the, the engine room of prayer. He drives us to our knees. I think Tony Rankin said, God brings His child not to keep us on our toes, but to drive us on our knees. I mean, nothing will make you pray quicker than a trial. So when we, right there, you just see, this is God's goodness right here. He's driving me back to Himself. I've been. I've been drifting in some way in my prayer life. So just we need to remember those two truths. He's sovereign and good. I think that will help us as we have here. Trials. Thank you. 
opportunities um, have more in our suffering. So I think one of the biggest things we have to preach to ourselves when suffering comes, in light of this text and many others, is when that, that hopelessness wants to settle in, we want to, you know, we, we, if we're honest, we want to shake our fist at God, why am I having to go through this? Now, we know God has many reasons, many reasons, I think. I've said this before, and quote me, correct me if I don't get this just right, but I think it was Piper who said something to the fact that, you know, if God has 10,000 things he's doing in any circumstance that we go through, we might be aware of three of them. Um, and we need to remember that. That if we could, if, if we could somehow go into the place where God is and see everything that He sees, know everything that He knows, understand everything the way He understands it, we wouldn't change anything. Really, we wouldn't change anything. We'd say yes and amen. This is exactly what needs to happen in my life. Don't be Job's friends who <laughs> accuse him or something. But, you know, we, but we just need to, again, going, going back to the problems here, uh, endure, the parenting, the that's, that's, that's what we're looking for. Sure, it's a nice hope. Yeah. Oh, uh, that is an important definitional matter. The world uses this hope in moments like wishful thinking. I hope this happens. I'm not sure if it will. I don't really have 100% confidence that it's something I want to happen. But there's a good chance it might not. That's not hope in the Bible. Okay? Hope in the Bible is, is a settled conviction that God's going to do exactly what He says He's going to do, that He's going to do all His purposes for us. And so hope, biblically speaking, is not this wishful thinking of something that might happen. So the hope that He's talking about. It, it is a settled conviction of God's faithfulness, of God's goodness, of, of the, the satisfaction that we have in God, that he is our sufficiency in all things, so that even if we lose all things and we still have God, we've still come out good. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we need to think about hope. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. A, a lot of people who have walked away from the Christian faith have walked away because of suffering. So that unexpected things have come into their life, and their response is either God isn't real, God doesn't care if he is real, God isn't powerful enough to fix this problem, so I'm, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm hitting the eject button. I, I want nothing more to do with this God if he's, if he's even real. It's, it's interesting, though. The, Intense suffering can cause people to leave the faith, or at least it looks like that's what's causing them to leave the faith. But at the same time, how many people do we know who came to know the Lord? Why? Because of intense suffering in their life. And so we, we got to figure that it, suffering is not the reason why people fall away, or it's not really the reason why people draw near to God. Suffering puts us in an environment where things are tested, things are, things are tried, try to figure out kind of what's going on, what am I leaning on? You mentioned idols that we could be leaning on. If, if an idol is kicked out from under me, and I'm really worshiping this idol, and it's taken away from me, then one response is to despise 
God for removing my idol. And that's how Job could have responded. If his idol was his family, if his idol was his wealth, and he loses it all in a day, then he would have done what Satan said Job was going to do, which is what? He's going to curse you to your face the moment you take this stuff away. Of course, Job loves you. He doesn't really love you. He uses you, God. He's using you to get what he really wants, which is his idol, his family, his protection, his headship protection around him. He says, take away that, let him flounder, and he will actually curse you. He will not bless you. He will not love you. And well... Job certainly grieves. grieves. He certainly doesn't deny the suffering. He tears his cloak. Uh, he falls on the ground. And it says he worships. And it, it, he did not sin with his mouth uh, when, when he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan was silenced because Job was found to be actually worshiping God. He wasn't worshiping the stuff, the, the, the things, even the relationships that were so valuable. He cared greatly about his family and about all the things that God had given him. But when they were taken away at the end of the day, he collapses onto God. He collapses into the arms of God, uh, and, and he, he says, listen, I, I, I can't make sense out of all this, and he's going to grieve pretty intensely throughout the book of Job, but he certainly says, I'm staying here with you. I, I, I've got nowhere else to go. And it's kind of like Peter uh, in John 6. Do you remember after the feeding of the 5,000, uh, the crowd wants to make Jesus king because they've misunderstood the, the Messiah claim. And uh, Jesus, remember, gives that really offensive sermon, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. And people are looking at Jesus like, what are you saying? And so thousands of people are offended. Thousands leave him that day. And Jesus turns to the, you know, to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter has that great line where Peter says, to whom are we going to go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so, suffering oftentimes drives you into that kind of direction. Like, Lord, I don't understand this. I can't fully make sense out of why all this is happening. But there's no other alternative. There's, there's no other, who else has the words of eternal life? There's nowhere else I have to go. I'm staying with you. So, suffering can either make someone walk away, or suffering can make someone draw near. And it's really what we do by God's grace with the sufferings that we encounter that, that makes the difference, what God does in us through, through them. You mentioned, you mentioned first Peter, uh, or second Peter for that matter. I did a little search on, on suffering, sufferer, suffering, sufferer, uh, and it's used 120 times in Scripture, but the preponderance is in the New Testament. It's more defined in the New Testament. They might say Greg suffered. Uh, but in the New Testament, we get Romans 5, and, and, and uh, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness, and that type of thing, then going through Paul's explanation of all that, how it works and why it happened and that type of thing. So we have a lot more insight into mm -hmm. why we suffer. Yeah, uh, just another thing I would say is uh, when people remain steadfast in the face of suffering, like a Job, or especially people in church history, for me, it is unusually powerful to study these lives. Uh, people have lost so much. Even Elizabeth Elliot this week, because yesterday was the 66th mm -hmm. anniversary when she lost her husband, and she remained steadfast. The other women, I mean, you could just name lots of people. You can study Adoniram Judson suffered about as much as anybody I've ever read about, and yet he just remained trusting God. So it just encourages all to study people in church history who've who've remained steadfast in the face of suffering. We have Jerry in our church that we can watch up close, which is a great benefit, but it's just so honoring, honoring to God when people remain, like the Habakkuk passage, like, yet I will rejoice in God. That honors God so much when you remain steadfast. We have a wealth of that. One of the things I would just say about uh, goodness of God and suffering, uh, this is again borrowing from John Newton, but he would say, suffering teaches us compassion. I, I was going to tie in this with you, Mark, but it's sort of like 
there's a story about a guy, I heard this from a pastor, a guy who was a medical technician of some kind. He would help people go through this surgery of some kind. He would get them ready and help walk them through this procedure. And he sort of just did it not very caringly. And he did this for several years. And then eventually he had to do the same procedure. And it was extremely painful when he actually did it himself. And so then when he went back to his job, it taught him compassion. He had much more compassion now for the same people walking through it. Well, in the same way, God used our trials to teach compassion to the people. So we we should see that as God's goodness. It's like God's causing us to give us a pastoral heart for other people walking through something. And I was thinking of a couple who gets married, they lose a baby. Well, they grieve through that process. Well, God comforts them so that they can comfort others. Then maybe a few years later, they meet a couple. This couple they get to know, they befriend, and then this couple loses a baby. Well, how much more compassionate towards this couple is this couple going to be? And I thought about you uh, in the hospital several days with pneumonia, COVID. How much more compassionate are you going to be in a few years from now? You meet a guy who has, has, deals with, with pneumonia, and he was in the hospital. You're going to be so much more compassionate towards them than you would have been had you not walked through that. So even there, it's God's goodness in there. He's, he's causing us to teach us to be compassionate towards others where we wouldn't have been the same way had we not walked through that suffering with, with God there. And he defines that, in the, like in, first, in Second Corinthians, first chapter, the God of all comfort will comfort mm-hmm. us so that we can in turn comfort others. That's exactly others, right. just what you said. Yeah. I think it's important too uh, to remember get these things settled in your heart now because if mm. you wait until suffering comes then they they won't help you like you you need to build a firm foundation in your heart and in your soul right now with these truths and get very well acquainted with them very familiar with the sovereignty of God with God's purposes with you know, God doing this so that you can show him, like, get all of that settled now and, and go back to it on a regular basis to keep it strong so that when trials and suffering come, like, you have something to stand on. Too many people, they, they give a lip service to what we're saying right now, um, but they never internalize it. They never, like, you know, plan it deep. And so when suffering comes, they're the ones, and I hate to say it, who are most likely to question God, to doubt God, to, to rage against God, and to even depart because they never own these things. And these things never, never like really sunk deep roots down into them. And so be well acquainted with the stuff we're saying. This stuff we're preaching to ourselves um, as well. Like we have to go back to these things. Otherwise, when the trials come, we're, we're in trouble. Yeah. And <clears throat> I mean, we cannot get bored with the fact or we cannot grow callous to the fact that we have a God who has suffered. I mean, that is something that no one else has. There, there is no one else who has that resource, like any other religion, any other worldview. Nobody has the God who has faced suffering genuinely and, and suffered more. I mean, the Lord Jesus suffering physically, we should, we, we should not go extended periods of time without thinking about the physical suffering of our Lord. We, we should think about the nails. We should think about the scourging. And that should be a, a regular part of our, of, our, of our meditation throughout the week. That should come back to us. We should think about the spiritual agony that he experienced with his father. I mean, it, it, you know, we ask these questions, why would God allow these things? But look at the cross. I mean, look at what the Lord Jesus endured for us. Look at the suffering he went through. Um, when you realize that he is not unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, he has been tempted at all points like as we are yet without sin. 
That is a resource that no Buddhist has, no Hindu has. Uh, Good night, Islam would not get close to saying that Allah has ever experienced anything like physical suffering or desertion. That, that would be blasphemous in, in an Islamic setting. There is, there is no resource there. there. God cannot draw near to you. Allah cannot sympathize with you in that sense. It's not something he is capable of doing if you were real. Uh, but, but the God of the Bible has actually walked where we walk. Um, I mean, Isaiah Isaiah titles Jesus a man of sorrows. Just like astonishing. I mean, that, that's what our God is called. He's, he's given the title man of sorrows, um, acquainted with grief, uh, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. So, I mean, whether it's relational suffering, Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned by his friends. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed for silver pieces by one of his closest friends that he chose. Jesus knows what it's like to experience unimaginable physical pain uh, beyond anything we've ever experienced. He knows what it's like to experience spiritual abandonment by God. Jesus knows that. Not the way that God knows a mathematical equation. He knows it the way you know something because you've experienced it. You've been through it. That's how God knows suffering. That's how God knows what we've been through. Um, I, you know, it's just, it's incredible, like, uh, when you're sick, you, you want something to help you with your pain, right? You want something to, to dull the pain if it's very bad. It, this is something that struck me in the last, I don't know, a little while back, before all this COVID stuff happened. But there's a verse, you know, in Matthew, when Jesus is on his way to the cross, where uh, they offer him the wine, you know, mixed with vinegar. And... Um, you know, I, I wanted to double check this, so I looked at the commentaries, and, and they all say the same thing, which is, just think, think about this. Jesus had a way, on the way to the cross, to dull his pain. It was offered to him. He tasted the wine, which would have, to some degree, dulled or lessened the pain that he was experiencing. And uh, what happened? He refused to drink it. That just, that, that is, a, that's a staggering thought, that he could have dulled the pain of what he was going through. Which, it, listen, if you were on the way to the cross, the temptation to drink that would have been unbelievably strong to dull any of the pain that you're experiencing. Uh, and it's, it's, Jesus offered a painkiller, and he tastes it, he realizes what it is, and he spits it out. He doesn't, why? Because Jesus came to endure the fullness of God's judgment for us. He came to experience the fullness of the weight of sin and pain and grief and loss and abandonment. His, men, his mental clarity had to be fully intact uh, for him to do that. And um, I, I just think that we have an embarrassment of riches to offer a suffering world, which is the gospel. What else is better? What else is more satisfying than the, than the very idea that God himself would suffer and, uh, for us and, and to care for us in that way? Um, I, I just think that th that's got to be our meditation. It's got to be what we offer to people. It's got to be what we hold out. Atheism has nothing like that to offer to a suffering world. They've got nothing to give you. All, all they can say is it's an accident. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know what to do. But, but to have God in the flesh suffering, uh, that, that is something that is, that, is, that, that is unique amongst all the worldviews. I don't know anything, that, anything like it. Just a quick, quick thing that just came to mind. That Liliana and I watched this documentary on Corey Ten Boom uh, this week. It's not really the best made. I mean, it's it's a documentary, but it had moving parts. They're reenacting the scenes and stuff. But they hid Jews, and then they they got found out. Somebody betrayed them. Essentially, they got thrown in these different prison camps. But they had to go to the Ravensbrook, which is a horrible place, and they had to be stripped of their clothing, and they had to walk naked. And she and her sister walked naked past these guards. She said, like, the shame is just unbelievable. This shame, I just can't bear the shame. But then she said, Corey said, she thought of Jesus, and she saw the passage where they took all his clothes, and she said it was like she understood a little bit of the depth of what Christ endured. I think she was moved by that 
uh, even in this immense suffering, she's enduring this immense shame, but she thought of Jesus and his shame, and there was this consolation, like the fellowship was sharing in his sufferings. And there, it was like a moving scene there for her as she went through this. The same exact thing that you're saying, that we, we have a, a Savior who has suffered uh, and can help us in, in our suffering. It's a powerful thing. Wait, which, it's, it's like, you know, on the, on the boat, when they had the storm, when Jesus is sleeping on the cushion, um, they, they wake up Jesus and they say, what was it, Do, uh, don't you care that we're perishing? I mean, that's the way we feel sometimes. Like, Lord, do you, do you care about what's going on in my life? Like, do you understand how, how bad this is, how hard this is? Don't you care that, that I'm perishing? And uh, I mean, it's, they, they had no idea the, the care that Jesus had for them uh, because of what he was going to do not many months from that time, uh, to what he was going to endure for them. So I, I think that it, it, for us to keep our sort of ballast in our boat, to keep from capsizing in the midst of very difficult times, uh, Golgotha has got to be the place that we look. It's got to be the center of, of, where, of, of, of where our gaze is, is fixed. I like the um, Hebrews 2.14. I mean, the incarnation has always been fascinating to me, but that, this short passage here really capsulizes what you just got through saying. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise partook of the same thing that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that's us. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That just sort of locks it home. Mm-hmm. Although it says a merciful and faithful high priest. We know yes. he's faithful, but think about the fact that he's a merciful high priest. You know, we mercy refers to um, like taking pity, like feeling pity and being moved to, to help someone who's in distress. And so when Jesus sees his people, when he sees you in your suffering, struggling, he doesn't be like, what's wrong with you? Why are you, you know, buck up, you know, toughen up, whatever. He's drawn, his heart is drawn to you in your suffering. He takes pity on you and he's like, I've got all this strength, all this joy, all this hope, all this endurance, and I'm coming with it to help you. I mean, that's the picture here when you think about it. He, he takes pity on us in our struggles and he comes, he runs to, to be our help in the midst of that. That's amazing. Turn to the right to the book of James real quick. There's a couple of passages I want to look at here. First is the very famous opening of James, which probably many of us know, uh, the very beginning of James 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about his brother there, <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, uh, lacking in nothing. So that's pretty amazing. Turn to chapter 4, and uh, this paragraph in particular toward the end of the chapter, now look at verse 13 of James 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. But just feeling the fact that we are under God's good sovereignty, uh, we can't control, what did Jesus say? You can't make one hair white or, or gray on your head. You can't control uh, the, the sparrow that falls in the forest uh, that, that the Lord is sovereign over. We can't control our own life. We can't control our own future. We, we have to always speak about our future as Lord willing. If the Lord wills, this or this may happen. If the Lord does not will, then, then that will not happen. But this idea that our life is a mist, uh, any, any thoughts on that idea? It's fleeting. It really is fleeting. I'm dealing right now, not to get personal, I'm dealing with a, a sister that's in um, uh, a rehab center from a stroke, and her husband is literally across the hall dealing from some of his health issues. And this all happened right before Thanksgiving. So, you know, it's just, you just don't know. It's like a mist. It's, you think everything's okay? You didn't know you were going in the hospital for what, a week? Five days. Five days. And then you were there. Yep. So, um, you know, it is God's will, whatever happens. And that's the way we ought to pray. That's the way we ought to think. That's the hope that we have. And, and we ought to, you know, seek his direction in that respect, too. Even here again, I would just say it's God's goodness again. We'll, we're prone to spiritual laziness. We're prone to the focus on the here and now, the temporal. And God will bring these trials in. Maybe he'll bring a loved one, a serious health thing, or maybe he'll bring something to you. And it's, it's, again, John Newton would say it's like ice water on a sleepy soul. He takes this trial, he throws this <laughs> ice water on the sleepy soul, it wakes you up. But wait a minute, eternity is real. Uh, this is not all there is. And I need to live in light of eternity. Even just this year, I've, I've seen at least two people from my gra graduating class. I had, I'm sure I had classes with them. Two girls uh, both died this year. And uh, you see that and you think, I thought, you know, if Jesus doesn't return, every single person in my graduating class is going to die. It just reminds you again of, of eternal things. It just wakens you back up. But again, it's God's goodness to just say, focus on the eternal. You're getting too fixated on the now, here and now. And he'll bring this trial in and you, you realize, oh, I really could die at any, any moment. I think even there, it, it reminds you of the preciousness of the gospel. I mean, I haven't had that many physical things. That one I mentioned in a sermon about a year ago, I had shortness of breath and I just didn't know what was going to happen. But it really just reminded me that I have the righteousness of Jesus. And it's just like, you have this sure and certain hope. And he, he he reminds you of how precious that, that is, especially when you're faced with your, your own death. Uh, but for you, certainly, you must have been reminded of this passage and how everything just, just changed in a moment there. You want to talk about any, any of that, of what you walked through, how this passage tied into to that, the mist? Or... Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, yeah, I don't have much experience with physical suffering in my life at all, but um, just the last few weeks, you definitely feel uh, just an incredible weakness, like phys physically weakness. Uh, you feel this tremendous need for God's help. Like, that's kind of what you're saying is you, you don't pray desperately until you feel the, the, the desperation of that. And then when you feel that weakness, it's, it's humbling in a way. It's hard to even put into words. Many of, many of you in this room have suffered far more than I did this last few weeks. But like, just the, the feeling of tremendous need for the Lord's help, tremendous need for His strength, and the, the feeling of, um, it's kind of like 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul talks about when I'm weak, then I'm strong, um, 
you, you just feel your desperation for God's assistance and, and, and how much you need that. And it's a wonderful, that, that's a wonderful thing to feel, uh, to, to feel how real that is, that, that I can't do this without his help. I need his help, turning to him for that, knowing that he has strength. Um, yeah, that's a very good thing. Uh, it's a very good thing to walk through in that regard. Um, another thing to, to keep in mind from James, if you go back to chapter 1, uh, verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so another thing we need to let sink down in is that there is a reward for those who persevere. Um, God has a reward. He says the crown of life. I mean, we think of how fleeting, as Fred was saying, this life is, how, how frail we are, how, you know, Mark, I, I think about, you know, one week you're here, you're preaching, the next week you're in the hospital. It's like how quickly our strength can be taken away. Um, and so there is a reward on the other side of suffering. On the, and, and I think we have to take the long view on this. There is a, a reward in heaven and then in the new heavens and the new earth that's called the crown of life, meaning a life that can't be touched by suffering. Like, and we, we keep that in view that, that a day is coming when suffering will be no more. Mm. When suffering will be a thing of the past. We will have memories of it. But it'll be a, a thing long gone and, and, and we will be enjoying life to the fullest in the presence of God. Uh, and I mean, again, this, this same blessed, if you remain steadfast, James is consistent. Look at chapter five, verse 11. He says, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. He's looking back to the past we've mentioned, Job. And again, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And we look at what Job went through and we say that doesn't look anything like mercy or compassion, but that was God's purpose in it. And I think we, again, taking the long view, Job on the other side of his suffering, when God restored everything and then some, where Job was then was far better than where he was when it all began. And I think we have to kind of... Uh, draw from that and say, where we'll be in this life, yes, but even more in the life to come, on the other side of our suffering, it is life uh, incomparably greater than anything we experienced before. And again, that's one of those truths we have to constantly come back to. But when he says, blessed is the person, that's like happy. Like um, there, there's this over, overwhelming sense of joy when you s remain steadfast, through the trial to the other side because there's reward, there's joy, there's life, there's, there's greater fellowship with God, a greater sense of the presence of God, all of that on the other side. And so when we go through suffering, say, this is what's on the other side of this and we know that's better than anything. And so we can latch onto that and say, I'm not letting go of this until I get to the other side because this is what he's promised. Mm. Yeah, but just say, again, what Greg is getting at, but I'm camping on these promises. Like, they're, they're yeah. so helpful in suffering. Like, going to James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains set for his under child. Uh, he, 
uh, let me read this again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will, like the certainty of it, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised, that God who never lies, he's promised right. this. So, so you camp on just, that's one verse you're camping on, and it, how short this suffering is, and what, what is to come, the crown of life to come, it's such a good thing to, to camp on the promises. Another one I was thinking is God's presence. He promises his presence is with us. Elizabeth Elliot, when she first found out her husband was missing, it was Isaiah 43, 2 came to her mind, uh, which says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. That's a precious promise. I was thinking about you in the hospital. Like Kelly couldn't even be there. She couldn't even come and like hold your hand. She couldn't do that. But God is there. Jesus has promised he will be with you. I mean, that is just such an encouragement in the midst of trouble trials when people, your family members can't even come. Uh, God is with us in the trial. And like John Patton, other guy, people like that have been sustained by this precious promise. So we camp on these promises and they will just strengthen us so much if we would just get in those promises uh, like, like, James, like Greg, you're talking about there. Can we, Papa, go ahead. Well, just like Romans 5, it's just part of the process. I was just thinking about Romans 8, and Romans 8, of course, is full of why, the why we suffer because we live in a broken world. But it says, Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, so we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided Mm-hmm. we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. It's almost like that's part of the little formula. Mm-hmm. We've got to suffer in order that we can be glorified. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for just a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm just going to read a portion here of this chapter. Look with me starting in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. So we have the gospel treasure in our bodies, our jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now, listen to this last part here. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now just Let me reread just... 1617. So we do not lose heart. So how does Paul keep from losing heart? Here's how. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now just pause there. The the, the inward renewal is something that doesn't, it's not a one-time fix where you have a great quiet time and then you're fixed. You're you're, you're, you're renewed and you just, you go. You go for the next 30 years running off that one renewal. No, Paul, I'm glad he says it this way. We're being renewed day by day. And so every day we've got to go, it's like, you know, it's like the gas tank in your car. You know, you run that thing out and you've got to go to the station and get more gas. You've got to refuel spiritually day by day. We've got to refuel. We've got to be renewed in our inner self every single day. So outer self is wasting away. Inner self, 
should be renewed day by day. And then verse 17, for this light momentary affliction, which could last 80 years, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So it doesn't just say that our sufferings are here and one day they'll be gone, which is true. He says, actually, our light momentary affliction compared with eternal glory, our light momentary affliction, all of our earthly sufferings are called light and momentary when you put it on the scale next to eternal weight of glory. So 80 years of chronic suffering, which is nothing to make light of, is something to make light of when you put it next to eternal glory. So Paul, Paul puts his whole life of immense suffering and says it's light and it lasts a moment. And he says, it's not just existing and one day it will be gone. The affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Now, I don't even, I don't know that I understand this. Maybe y'all can give me some insight on this. I'm not even sure I, I get this exactly. But there is something, there's a connection between our present sufferings and our future glory. And Paul is saying our present sufferings are actually preparing that future glory for us. There's some way in which it will be all the sweeter, all the more wonderful for us having gone through what we've gone through here and now in this life. And, um, you know, I've heard the illustration, you know, you have a horrible nightmare, uh, one, one pastor told a story where he had a nightmare where his family was like, you know, brutally murdered or something, a horrific nightmare, you know, and, and he, you wake up in the middle of the night sweating and you're terrified, like, what, what's going on? What's real? What's not real? You're trying to figure it out. Well, the next morning, as his children come gather at the breakfast table and everyone is completely healthy and fine, he said, there's something about the horror of that nightmare that actually made that next morning's breakfast a hundred times better than it would have been otherwise. There's a way in which the suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. There's, there's some connection between the loss and the grief and the sadness of this life and the, the trials and troubles that we go through that is in some way going to sweeten the undoing of those things one day. When, when death is overturned, right, when, when, you, when, when your loved one is raised from the dead by Jesus, what it does to the tears shed at that funeral 15 years earlier. You know, in some way, it must sweeten it. It must make it all the more glorious. In some way, our light momentary affliction is achieving for us. It's preparing for us the eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. And if that's true, we should fix our eyes on what is not seen, what's not yet here, and we should not fix our eyes on what is, what is temporary. Thoughts on, on that passage? I don't know if it's the the best way to image it, but as I think, because I'm always like trying to think, is there a way to picture that? And at least for me, where I'm at, again, I, I might find a better way to do this, but you know, we, we, we know graphs and, and I'm not a math person, but I do remember graphs. Okay. You know, you've got like your, your line, which represents zero, you've got negative, you've got positive. And so when you think about the fact that our suffering itself is producing glory, so think about suffering like going down into the negative. Think about glory going into the positive. So you think um, in, the, in the way Paul's talking here, so it's like let's just say suffering represented by that you go down negative one. Glory being prepared in, 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 com, in comparison to that is like 10,000 positive. You go down to 10 suffering, 10 million positive. You know, 100 suffering, 100 billion positive. Like that's the way I think about this when he talks about light versus incomparable. You're, you know, the scales is one thing, um, but, but picture like exponentially beyond in the other direction. Like that, that's the only way I can picture this, what Paul's talking about. And it, again, it's not that we'll forget the suffering but we will be so overwhelmed by the glory and goodness of God um, in his presence, that suffering, we're going to be like, you know, microscopically small compared to the vast ocean of God's goodness. 
Any closing thoughts here? We're almost out of time. Well, just one quickie. Uh, a lot of times this subject is not very popular with, with younger people because uh, we don't really want to think about suffering. But I, I, it, it's really good prep for that day when it will come, and it will come to everyone in different forms. And, of course, when you get to be a little bit on the older side, <laughs> it seems to be a more frequent <laughs> occurrence. So, anyway. Or this, ancient. Ancient. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Scott, anything? All right, Scott, can you close this sure. in prayer? Let's, let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, as we think about this topic of suffering uh, and uh, your sovereignty and your goodness, uh, first I would say uh, so thankful for Jerry Ediger, your humble servant, uh, who has modeled for us how to be joyful in the midst of lots and lots of years of suffering. Uh, we're so thankful for him and all his teaching that he has taught us on this subject. And Father, as we face suffering, help us to remember that you are sovereign and you are good, that suffering is never, ever meaningless in the Christian's life. Uh, you're always doing things, as Greg mentioned, maybe a thousand things, and maybe we know three of those things. So help us to remember your goodness uh, and your sovereignty in the midst of suffering. Help us to cling to the promises, uh, as Greg mentioned there in James 1.12, and other precious promises, even these in 2 Corinthians 4, light momentary, compared to the eternal weight of glory to come. Help us to, to cling to the promises. And help us to remember your goodness, that so often your, the trials that you bring into our lives will drive us to pray, will breathe new life into our prayers, uh, will wake up our, our sleepy souls, uh, to wake us up to eternal things, to the, the shortness of life. So help us to remember uh, your sovereignty and your goodness. And we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus, uh, who knows certainly about suffering, not only out of his omniscience, but out of his experience on the cross. And he is a merciful and faithful uh, high priest who's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, and we're so thankful for, for that. And uh, we pray for the service here coming up, uh, that you'd be at work during that time, especially for Greg as he teaches uh, from Isaiah 6. And uh, so thankful that Mark was able to come back today and is on the panel with us. Uh, what a joy it is to have him back up here and how you have strengthened him uh, back to a lot of his, his strength has come back. We're so thankful for that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Just uh, so you know, uh, we are going to delay finishing Grudem's book for a few months, just uh, for a few reasons. We're going to start Daniel, Lord willing, this next Sunday, and our plan is to work through Daniel, and then um, we do plan to finish Grudem, but, but uh, we'll, start with, we'll start with Daniel, we'll work through that for a number of months, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I think it'll be good. So thank you guys.